You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to America, the land of junk sleep, where it's bedtime, but you're double booked. Here, there's always one more deadline to meet, episode to watch, or meme to share. The world may not want you to sleep, but we do. Only the sleep experts at Mattress Firm can help you find the right bed at the right price. Unjunk your sleep. In-store or online at mattressfirm.com today. When you bundle your renters and auto insurance with Progressive, you could save money, but it doesn't cover any terrible memories living rent-free in your head. Hey, just wanted to remind you of that time your kicker missed the extra point and lost the game. Even though he literally never missed an extra point, he chose this playoff game to miss. Yeah, I just noticed you hadn't thought about that in a bit. Wouldn't want you to miss, you know, thinking about it. Sorry, we can't save you from that memory, but we could save you money bundling your renters and auto insurance with Progressive. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Renters insurance and bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Hi, and welcome to Who Did What Now? Or, um, hello and welcome to the coven of contempt and cookies, or, or, or donuts, whatever helps you digest historical facts. What? Welcome to Who Did What Now? The History Podcast with me, your petty host, Katie Charlwood, intersectional feminist and reader of books. And I'm going to start this off by saying hi. If you are new here, this is a history podcast that is not your history class. You will hear things here that you probably wouldn't have learned in school or may have been actively avoided being told in school, but that's okay. We're allowed to get our knowledge from different places and it's okay if we have different opinions. However, don't be a dick about it. I feel is kind of the way of things. Back to the story in hand. Uh, this week, I am very, very excited to talk about a whore of yore. Nell Gwyn. I love Nell Gwynn. She is glorious. I'm going to start off by giving you some sources. We're just going to jump right into it this week. We're going to jump right in. Okay, so sources. Okay, first one is a novel. Um, It's called Mistress Nell Gwynn by Marjorie Bowen, but it's, it is also known as Nell Gwynn, A Decoration. So it's more of a um, historical novel than it is a biography, but it was still an interesting... um piece to read. Another book is Nell Gwynn by Charles Beauclerk, the first Duke of St Albans, who is her son. So obviously an article on the astonishing life of Nell Gwynn 
at the National Theatre School um, of Canada. There is Britannica.com, Encyclopedia.com, uh, oh, HistoricUK.com, Nell Gwynn, Mistress of King Charles II. Let us get into Nell Gwynn, just like King Charles II did. Woo, 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 woo. I love Nell Gwynn. Oh, I should probably add that um, I will always try and have inclusive language here on the podcast, um, especially because one, it's just necessary. I I don't understand why you wouldn't. However, we're dealing with the 1600s, the 17th century. There is always the possibility that if I'm using a direct quote, uh, maybe by Nell herself, who knows, um, if I'm using quotes and references from the era um, some statements may not be as inclusive or respectful as, you know, we would have them now. And we have to take that into consideration when we're dealing with stuff in the past. So let's get right into it. The details regarding the origins of, of Nell's life are a, a kind of fuzzy because we don't have complete verified accounts on one way or the other. It's very much like we were talking about Grania Wheel. I've done my best to make this as clear as possible and as factual as possible but a lot of the, of this information is coming from like poetry um plays novels gossip and you know sexist historians <laughs> so we gotta take what we can with a pinch of salt eleanor gwynn was born on the 2nd of february perhaps in 1650 perhaps in 1642 we don't know we don't know her mother ellen or there and thereabouts, known as Old Madam, Madam Gwen or Old Ma Gwen. Um, she basically lived most of her life in the West End of London. Most biographers claim she was low-born, probably, because most people back then were low-born. And her father was some dude, uh, maybe from Wales, maybe died in prison. Who is he? We don't know. Do we care? No, we fucking don't. So, okay. <sighs> Nell, at one point, is assigned arms similar to those of the Gwens of... I'm going to try and pronounce this Welsh name and I'm going to fail, but I think it's um, Thansenor, Thansenor, L-L-A-N-S-A-N-N-O-R. I tried. If I failed, I'm so sorry, Welsh people. I am so sorry. <laughs> uh, so like loads of places claim to be like the birthplace of Neil Gwynn because they you know, don't have a record of it. So they're like, yeah, we totally are. So you've got Hereford, you've got London, mainly Covent Garden, and you've got Oxford. And they're like, yep. Like, there's a traditional belief that she was born in Pipewell Lane in Hereford. And one of the reasons why that one is so popular is because, like, Gwyn's, like, a Welsh name. And it is Hereford's on, like, the, the border of Wales. Whether or not Nell's dad was, like, dead or in prison or would have fucked off somewhere, we don't know, we don't care. But there's, like, stories he died in a debtor's prison. So Nell, Rose and her mum... They're, they're stuck. Like, you're a woman in the 1600s. What the fuck are you going to do? Respectable employment um, ain't exactly easy to get by. So, Ellen, Helena, Elena, Big Ma Gwen, whatever she's called, she decides to turn to the oldest profession in the book. And she sells her body to feed her little girls. So, um, Madam Gwen, she was an alcoholic, and she ran what was known as a body house. Body, B-A-W-D-Y. Or, you know, as we would call it, a brothel. Some historians suggest that Nell and her sister Rose, you know, some say that she was a uh, a child prostitute. Can one really be a child prostitute? Because 
nope, too much rage, not going to do that. So, like, you know, some say that, you know, that she worked in the brothel as a child. She's known as, like, a body house servant. Perhaps she was a a, um, a cinder girl um, and a street seller, possibly, of herrings, oysters, turnips. Um, she was known as a street hawker. Um, lol. See, now all I can think of is, like, alive, alive, oh. Um, so... <laughs> okay, side note. So, like, we always talk about... Um, you know, people of the past, and often when prostitutes and what well, I would call sex workers, but back then would be called um, prostitutes or harlots or whatever. It's always seen as this very seedy. Sex workers throughout the ages, they tend to be vilified. They tend to be seen as these evil scheming wenches, these harlots. Um, it's always seen in this derogatory, awful term. And, and the deviance of the whole situation is always placed upon the women. But like, it, it very rarely takes into account that working class women um, like Nell Gwynn had almost zero opportunity, zero means of independent survival in that day and age. They didn't have it. There were little to no opportunities for these people. So the Cromwells were effectively the Buzz Killingtons of the, you know, 1600s. And they they banned anything that they felt was frivolous, um, including like theatre and parties and anything like that. And for like, so that was like a decade of just drab, dreary sadness. And Charles II, <laughs> uh, the best headline I've ever seen was uh, Charles II. Was the king too randy to rule? Oh, it's glorious. So King Charles II, oh, King Charles II, anyone who's seen horrible histories <laughs> knows that King Charles II loved to party. He was he was the fun king. The monarchy is re-established and he gets put back on the throne. He goes back, so 1660, he's back on the throne. Um, He quickly reinstates the theatre. He loves theatre. And like, say, for example, even though like Queen Elizabeth was a patron of the arts, shall we say, she didn't visit the theatre. She never went there. It's not something she did. Things were brought to her. She was a patron of the arts, but she didn't really go there. Anyway, point being, he became king and one of the first thing he did was, boom, theatres are back. And also he forms acting companies and he legalises the women being allowed to act. Because like before this, all of the actors in any production, in any theatre group or any company, shall we say, they were played by men. But when Charles II comes around, he's like, nah, they can act too. Um, so in 1663, the King's Company, led by Thomas Kilgrew, Thomas Kilgrew, opens a new playhouse, the Theatre in Bridges Street. Um, and this is literally built and renamed the Theatre Royal, Drury Lane. Mary Meggs was known as Orange Moe. She was a pal of old Madame Gwynne's and she had a licence to... Vend, utter, and sell oranges, lemon, fruits, sweetmeats, and all manner of fruiterers and confectioners' wares within the theatre. So, Orange Mall hires the notorious Rose <laughs> and Nelgwen, orange girls, who sell, like, they sell these, like, little small, um, they're known as China oranges, to the audience inside the theatre. They sell them for sixpence each, and they do it with being a bit more scantily clad. So this is the King's Playhouse. And as we said, Charles himself usually comes to performances. So being an orange seller, being an orange girl, it gave them access and connections to London's higher society that they wouldn't have had previously. 
And another thing they would do, so not only would they sell, you know, their sixpence of oranges, they would deliver messages to and from horny high society men. And they would get tipped by this. Tipped for this, hopefully in change and not by the tip of a... peanuts. Most historians do agree, though, that the girls often ended up delivering more than a... (coughs) refreshments. So they would sell fruit, they would deliver messages, and they would also, quite probably, possibly... Provide sexual favours in exchange for money. I suppose it depends on how, how bawdy this theatre was, really. I mean, were they given hand jobs in the back of the theatre? Were they meeting somewhere a bit more discreet? Were they in a box? I mean, if you're in a box, you're generally fine, but... Anyway, point being, good old Nell only does this for like a year. So while she's at the theatre, she becomes the mistress of the leading man of the theatre, Charles Hart. So less than a year later... She becomes one of the first public actresses in England, which is pretty fucking cool. So somewhere between the age of 14 and 21, because we don't know her birth date, she manages to level up and becomes one of the actresses at Bridges Street Theatre. Nell is seen as like this absolute stunner. So she has chestnut hair, light hazel eyes, partly like a really nice smile. So she's also described, and I'm really sorry for this, as having curvaceous legs and daintily tiny feet this has definitely got some cinderella feel to it i'm just saying (laughs) oh man i mean here's the thing about Nell. like we know she's gorgeous right oh like and nearly every portrait of Nell really really shows off her bosom the restoration was not a subtle time my friends not a subtle time so Nell gwen is witty as fuck absolutely stunning and has a strong clear voice which one would supposedly have if she was a street hawker before that because she would need to be able to have people hear her so she could sell shit so apparently all these things combined caught the eye of Killigrew who we mentioned earlier and she had to um prove herself clever enough to succeed as an actress right so now she can't read she can't write she is illiterate for the record. So she basically starts learning shit off other actors. So she learns to dance, she learns to perform, you know, she takes it all on board. And in general at the time, plays had such short runs because there was such a small like audience pool, as limited people were going to the theatre. So each thing that was shown was always going to have a short run. So the rumour mill states that she was shagging all these actors and that's why they taught her all the stuff she wanted to know. And you know what? You do what you gotta do to get yourself out of the slums of London, girl. Live your best life. And at this point, she's uh, she's a little bit of celebrity. She's known as Pretty Witty Nell. We know that she becomes a decent actress and is relatively well-known by 1665. And the first recorded appearance we have of her on stage is in March 1665 in the heroic drama The Indian Emperor, playing Sidaria, daughter of Moctezuma, and the love interest of Cortez, played by her real-life lover, Charles Hart. So yeah, so this is a drama. Nell herself said that she wasn't really super into like playing drama and didn't really suit her too much. So when this new restoration comedy comes around, Nell Gwynn becomes a fucking star. Unfortunately, mid-1665, so like just as she's like really hitting her stride, what comes to London? The Great Plague of London, because of course it does. Oh no. You know, obviously Burgess Street shuts down. So Gwen and her mum, they basically bollocks off to Oxford following the king and his court. The king's company um, has these has these private shows for the king during while they're like hiding from the second plague. And then when the theatres reopen, Gwen's back on the stage doing her fun thing. So the 16, in 1667, 
she has an affair with Charles Sackville and he's known as Lord Buckhurst. Sackville was cultured, witty, satirical, dissolute and utterly charming. But you know what What was also quite nice about um, Lord Buckhurst is he gave her an allowance of £100 a year so she could leave acting. But it didn't last very long. It is 1667 and the 2nd Duke of Buckingham, George Villiers, uh, goes to goes to Gwyn and he's like, listen, I want to get Charles II a new mistress, my cousin Barbara Palmer. She's his like principal mistress. She's like number one. And honestly, I, I really like to get closer to the king. I want to move up the ranks a wee bit more. So maybe you could be his mistress because I think you're an actress. He loves this shit. What do you think? Gwen's like, sure, um, I'll take £500 a year. And in today's money... £56,889.25. Ash. So this plan fails. Yeah, she asked for 500 quid a year, and this is like, nah, too much, no way, mate. So he is so annoyed. He is, he is shocked and appalled at Nell's response. So Buckingham basically offers it to Maul Davis. And I like to think that this is just a little bit out of spite, because he did, because she was Gwen's sort of acting rival. Like, she was the one. So Buckingham's like, you know... I'm going to go to the other company with Moll Davis. She's an actress there. I'm going to set her up with the king because she's cheaper. So that's good. And um, Nell's like, <laughs> fuck that for a game of soldiers. I don't think so. Don't do this to people. But it's still pretty funny. <laughs> don't do this to people. So Moll Davis is due to spend an evening with the king and she's having her tea time cakes. But little does she know that Nell with the help of a friend, manages to put a very powerful laxative into these tea time cakes, thus meaning Davis had the runs instead of meeting with the king, or maybe she met with the king and then suddenly, oh, oh, either way, this didn't happen. She managed to kibosh that. So basically, Charles and Nell, they began an affair in around about 1668. And in general, everyone thought, yeah, this isn't going to last because they were like, he runs through women like he runs through whatever the fuck. Everyone assumed that this was going to be another one of the king's flings. Um, he was shagging actresses left, right and centre. He kind of did whatever he wanted, really. But... Cause that, so there she is. She's mid-1668. They're having the affair. Um, Nell is continuing to act. She's known as this comic actress she's funny she's witty she's and because she's you know she's notorious now and this brings in like you know larger crowds and then playwrights are creating more roles for her and she's just constantly showing up in all these different plays yeah so she's in dryden's an evening's love uh, she's in lacy's old trip cavalier blah, blah 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 however so basically she gets more committed to the king the less she acts so yeah, when she meets Charles, he has a wife, um, a primary mistress, um, and all of these, all these actress, a- actresses he just cannot keep his dick out of, because man, I mean, we make jokes about sex addicts, but I, at this point I'm starting to think he really just was a sex addict, because he was, there wasn't anything he wasn't sticking his dick in. Charles was, was married to the Portuguese Queen Consort Catherine of Braganza, and There was this whole situation called the bedchamber crisis, which resulted in, with most of Catherine's retinue being dumped back to Portugal. 
and and she was being ostracized from court and we're, we're going to talk about this we will get into this another time um so basically she has no choice but to allow charles charles's mistresses to be given like semi-official sort of standing and you know whatever so yeah so basically nell's adopted into court and she is like this permanent fixture in king charles's life so like nell had this joke that charles ii she would call him charles iii after the other two charles she was um she was bumping uglies with fucking love it nell gwyn when she asked for the 500 pounds from buckingham and he was like nah so when she becomes charles mistress um charles ii's mistress um he gives her an income of four thousand pounds a year and this goes up to nine thousand pounds a year and like in today's money that's four hundred and fifty five thousand one hundred and fourteen pounds what the okay yes please i'd listen have as many mistresses as you like i'll take that money sports are easy to disagree on let's see what happens when sports talk hosts talk about something they agree on I'm saying drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. Well, I disagree. I think drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. <laughs> Come on. Wait, I think we're saying the same thing. Oh, so uh, what do we do now? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Everyone agrees that drivers who switch and save with Progressive could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings by new customer surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2020 and May 2021. Potential savings will vary. Yoinks! You know what? Being an actress and a harlot really set her up here because it meant that she was used to performing, which is something she would have to do at court quite a bit. Because life at court, it's performative, you know what I mean? And even though she was disliked by um the rival mistresses, obviously, she was very well liked by other courtiers and she was and she had she was quite popular with the public. Oh my god. So 
Barbara Palmer, I fucking love this, she shows up in this like new fancy carriage, all up in Nell's face about it. So Nell, so she shows up at Barbara's estate in this rough little cart and with that is being drawn by six oxen. So she just goes round and round the building, yelling, whores to market, ho! <laughs> and the whole point of this is like, Barbara can, you know, have her fancy carriage and her fancy estate and do whatever she does um, and act how she wants to act. But um, they're both mistresses and it doesn't change that. So yeah, Nell's out shopping um, and at some point during this uh, shopping spree and her coachman is in a fight with like, all these other men and she's like what is going on and he tells her that they called Nell a whore and she responds with I am a whore find something else to fight about and the story goes that she gives him a wink gets back into her carriage and then heads on back to the palace oh so so Nell Gwen decides to get a portrait painted of herself so this portrait of Nell Gwen is glorious um, made by a cleverly anonymous painter in the late 17th century, is it's quite small, so it's barely larger than a postcard. Let me describe it for you. Um, I, I will post it on the Instagram, actually, for you, so you can have a wee look. A virginal white Gwen, but it, and she's in this virginal white chemise. Her bosom is showing, and she is she's flashing this bountiful bosom while um, stuffing sausages. And if that isn't an innuendo... I don't know what is. Uh, I love the idea of like sending a nude and it's just like a painting that she had to pose for. I love it. So while at court, Nell wasn't like used to, you know, money and having a lot of it. And uh, so she would like gamble away like massive, massive sums. Like, so she's playing cards with this gentleman, shall we say. So she loses a bunch of money to him and he tries to pressure her to pay him back with her body. And she's like, <laughs> no. She calls him a dog and absolutely refuses. Probably got King Charles to pay the bill. When Nell's with Charles the first couple of years, you know, there is, there isn't that much competition um, in the way of other mistresses. You've got Barbara Palmer, who's like already on the way out. You know, she's, she's getting older. You know, she's just not really up for it as much anymore. And you've got like Moll Davis, who, <laughs> who she, um, Mm, got rid of. Okay, so a fucking love is a fucking love is so like proof that Nell is naturally funny. So King Charles II is freaking out. He's got all these mistresses and they're all hounding him for money and he's freaking the fuck out and he's like, Nell, what do I do? And her response was lock up your codpiece. I love that. It's like, well, well, maybe if you weren't taking so much time getting your dick wet, you wouldn't have to throw coins at everybody. Like, deal with it, mate. <laughs> so Nell Gwyn is loved by the common people. So like, they all know her as pretty witty Nell. And this is all because like, when, when she was acting, she was this really, really popular comic performer. And, and they loved seeing her as these like sassy heroines and comedies and romances you know, drama wasn't really her thing, but she was so loved. And, you know, she was great at it. She gives birth to her first son, Charles, on the 8th of May, 1670. And this is like the king's seventh son by five separate mistresses. Um, and he is, this is Charles Beauclerk. So Nell is this 
fucking superstar. So a stage company literally waits months for her to be ready to go back to the stage. And she does. But the reason she leaves is because she has to go back to court full time. Because there's a new girl in town. So she has spent years and years being Charles' favourite mistress. So after she gives birth to Charles, this new mistress comes in. Um, a French mistress, Louise de Carroel, you know, a maid of honour for Queen Catherine. But generally, this is designed by English and France to sort of, you know, as, as a way to appease King Charles. Louise becomes her main rival. They were complete opposites. So, like, Louise was a, a noble woman of noble birth. She's high maintenance. She's very up here. And Nell is like, I'm from the gutter, mate, but I will take you down. <laughs> the rivalry between, like, Curwell and Gwen is just fantastic. It's, it's, oh, I was like, that is, that is what I need to see. If you're going to make me a historical period drama, bring me Nell Gwen. Let me see backstabbing and fighting and just sly jabs back and forth. Absolutely. When Nell, so basically Louise becomes a duchess. She gets an official duchess. She becomes the Duchess of Portsmouth. And um, she was always bringing up like the fact that Nell was low born and she didn't, she wasn't noble. And she would like say things to Nell like she had such pretty clothes and she could be queen because she'd been like so sarcastic about it. And Nell was just like, mm -hmm, okay, and you cartwheel look whore enough to be a duchess. Like, oh, the duchess, Louise de Carouel, she's wearing black because some French dude died. Yeah, it's so, like a French prince dies, so she's like wearing all black and stuff. And Nell decides to do the same fucking thing. So she comes in, somebody asks like, who are you um, in relation to this French prince? And Nell responds, oh, exactly the same relation that the French prince was to Mademoiselle de Carouel. So Nell gets this house in Palmall and she moves into this brick townhouse and it's, um, and it's owned by the crown. Ba and basically Nell says, is like, if, if I don't own this house, if it isn't in my name, then it's not my house and I don't live there. So what are you going to do? Um, and she said, you know, it has to be, it has to be given to her by an act of parliament. So that's what they do. <laughs> it becomes, in 1676, she is granted the freehold of the property. And this like stays in her family until 1693. And in 1960, the house was still the only one on the south side of Pall Mall, not owned by the crown. It's fucking glorious. So the house in Pall Mall, right? So the bed that she has there is made of solid silver and would cost like 300 grand today to have. And the sleeping quarters also had like this um, suggestive warming tray for her bedroom activities. And it is inscribed with fear God and serve the king. The reason the silver bed exists is because now, now, oh my God, she takes... Oh, I love this pettiness. I aspire to be this level of petty. Oh, so Louise de Carouel, or Louise Cartwheel, as she called her. So she gets this silver dinnerware from the king, and it is extravagant. And Nell's like, all right, okay, keep your forks, my friend. So not only does she get a silver bed, but she orders this even more expensive silver table set to go along with her new furniture. <laughs> Oh my god, wow. So basically no supporters who were you know weren't keen on this, you know, French born um duchess. They were like super mad 
that this foreign mistress was getting better gifts and more expensive stuff than, you know, their beloved, down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth English now. But they even started a campaign to get the king to melt down all of Louise de Carrel's, like, silver tableware, her dishes, her set, her forks and everything else, and pour them down her throat, like... <laughs> Obviously, Louise wasn't too happy about this, so she responds with, was um, to say that anybody may know she has been an orange wench by her swearing. I mean, okay, fair enough. Nell did um, swear like a sailor and she had absolutely no qualms about it. Like she was very aware like, of who she was and what she did. And like, yeah. So King Charles II is like, so he goes to Nell when he wants to talk about shit. Like he stresses out. He's like, what can I do to please Parliament? Nell goes... Hang up the French bitch, referring to like Louise de Carouel. So now, um, Nell has a as a second child named James with um the king, um in December of sixteen seventy one. Yeah, and Nell being clever, she named him after you know Charles's brother, not because she liked him. She thought he was dour, but you know she thought eh, give a little, give a little. Um, and he's sent to school in Paris, and then when he's six, he dies. The only clues of his death are. A, a sore leg, um, which could be anything, really. Um, there's, like, speculation. They're like, it was an accident, it was poison. But you know what? We don't fucking know. Nell accuses Louise de Carouel of, like, poisoning him. So basically, Nell goes into this deep depression. She's really grieving the loss of her of her son. And she's really guilty about it because she's, in her mind, it's her fault because she sent him away to Paris. And she, like, refused to see anybody for months. Talking about kids, Charles, Charles Beauclerk, when he's six, when he's six, the king arrives and Nell goes, come here, you little bastard, and say hello to your father. And the king is like, you can't call him that. And she's like, well, <laughs> your majesty has given me no other name by which to call him. And he's like, ah, fuck. So then he becomes the Earl of Burford. And then, because um, in 1676, a warrant is passed that Charles Beauclerc, the king's natural son, and to the heirs males of his body, the dignities of Baron and Harrington County, Oxford, and Earl of Burford in the same county. Like, the reason Nell wanted a title for her son, it was more out of, um, it was more fueled by jealousy than anything else, because Nell herself didn't really ask for a ton of stuff, except to, you know, screw over other mistresses. Like, that's literally it. That's kind of how her thing was. Because she didn't ask for so much shit. Like, she didn't demand everything. He was just giving it to her more so because she didn't demand it. So when Louise de Carouel gets the title of the Duchess of Portsmouth, she's like, bitch, you better give my son a title. After which, um, Nell and Charles get a house in Windsor. Yeah, it's now called Burford House. Um, and it's on the edge of the home park in Windsor. And she lived there whenever the king was in Windsor Castle. Not only does she have Burford House in the home park in Windsor, Pall Mall House, she also has like a summer residence, which is now 61 to 63 King's Cross Road in London. So King Charles gets this new mistress. Hortense was apparently, so she was like apparently this runaway duchess. She was um, an Italian beauty. And apparently like she intimidated Nell. So Louise de Carouel is so enraged with Hortense that she bashes her head on a bedpost until Hortense has a black eye. So Nell, being very clever, decided to use her skills 
and get to know her enemy. So she would host card games where like Carl and Louise and Hortense, they would just gamble like huge, huge sums of money and then they would leave King Charles II had to foot the bill, which is fucking glorious. But um, Nell didn't really have to worry so much because Hortense was wild. So not only did she have an affair with the Prince of Monaco at the time, she was also sleeping with Anne Leonard. This is Charles II's daughter, illegitimate, but still, that's a, that's a level that, that's a dangerous tightrope to walk. When, so when the king finds out, he's like, what the actual fuck? Get the hell out. So Hortense gets um, knocked out and Nell is back at top of the list. In 1681, this is glorious, um, she is mistaken for the Duchess of Portsmouth, um, King Charles II's Catholic mistress, and this mob attacks her coach. And so she leans out the window and she, <laughs> and she yells to the crowd, be civil, I am the Protestant whore. <laughs> and this abates them. <laughs> 1682, the Royal Hospital um, in Chelsea um, was created as a retreat for veterans. And this was basically inspired by um, Les Invalides in Paris. The sto- as the story goes, she convinces King Charles to approve the construction of this Royal Hospital for ex-servicemen in the city of London. Um, and it's basically a precursor to what a modern VA hospital would be. Um, the story goes that she noticed like this desperate beggar on the side of the road and she, you know, hops out of her carriage, talks to him, and discovers that he fought on behalf of Charles II. And she is like, and she's like shocked that ex-soldiers are homeless, like they don't have anywhere to go. She basically insists that um, the king takes responsibility for um, injured veterans. And in 1682, the Chelsea Hospital is opened. And when um, Henry German, uh, first Earl of St Albans, dies in 1684, King Charles basically gives his son Charles the dukedom of St Albans, an allowance of a thousand pounds a year, and gives him the offices of Chief Ranger of Enfield Chase and Master of the Hawks. So on the 3rd of February, 1685, which may or may not be her birthday, we're not entirely sure, so the king gets out of bed early and he's going to get Nell a gift because it's her birthday. Um, but while he's getting dressed, he has a seizure. And this is basically the beginning of the end for King Charles II. Supposedly, um, the king was going to make her a Countess of Greenwich. And she was going to receive a noble title. But after Charles died, that went up in smoke. And so she would stay now Gwen for the rest of her lives. When King Charles dies on the 6th of February 1685, there is, um, he has a death wish, deathbed wish, to his brother James II, which is, do not let poor Nelly starve. James II ends up paying most of Nell's debts, gives her an annual pension of £1,500 a year, although, so James II takes over and um, he's like, Gwen, you and your boy, you gotta, you, you gotta switch to Roman Catholicism. And Gwen's a Protestant, hardcore Protestant, some might say. And she's like, mm, mm-hmm, no thank you. Being the shrewd woman that she is, she's like, mm, I'm an actress, I can do this. She dresses in a Sunday best, she attends church, and um, she basically implies that she is absolutely considering converting. Like, she's, she's thinking about it. She's going over it. She's mulling it over in her mind. And um, this is enough for James. He's like, oh, good, you're trying. 
Mm-hmm. Because he's like, of course she's gonna, of course she's gonna convert. Because I'm the king. She's gonna do what I say. So she's like, mm-hmm. Takes his money. Bollocks is off to Pall Mall, and she's quite happy. She's done. In 1687, Nell Gwynn has a stroke, and this leaves her paralysed all down one side. In May, she has a second stroke, and on the 14th of November 1687, at about 10pm, she dies from apoplexy. Effectively, effectively, they believe this was because of syphilis, and I'm not surprised because King Charles II was full of venereal diseases. So I- what is surprising is, although Nell had what would be referred to as a less than re- respectable um, employment, um, when she died, there was an enormous crowd at her funeral. Like, the nation goes into mourning. They love this, like, rags to riches um mistress she's a concubine she's a courtesan she's a harlot whatever you want to call her um but as far as everything else she was she was loved by the nation she was loved by the common people she never did anything to show disrespect to her root she was faithful to king charles ii you know once they started bumping uglies that was her she wasn't going anywhere else and in her will, she left gifts for all her servants. She provided, um, so there was money for the poor. Sure, there was money for Roman Catholics. She also made arrangements so that funds that she had that were left, money would go towards paying off the debts of people who were in debtor's prison on Christmas Day. And something we forget all the time is like, she did all of this while being illiterate. This is what you would call a Cinderella story, just not in the way one would expect it to be, I suppose. I mean, this is like the more realistic version of a Cinderella story. And Nell worked her way up from the fucking gutter and ended up with three, four households and becoming the most beloved concubine of King Charles. By a combination of wit, charm and poisoning her rivals with laxatives. (laughs) And Nell has gone on to inspire plays and poems and... Oh, oh, there's a monument in Tring Park um, in London. It's called Nell's Monument and it is the only official monument to a royal mistress in, like, the entirety of London. And that is the story of Nell Gwynn. I love Nell. She's just a whore of yore. Fucking love now. What have we learned today? Don't judge someone from where they come from. Uh, appearances can be deceiving. <laughs> Never underestimate a girl from the gutter. I'm just saying, if you like today's episode, I would appreciate it if you would go on to iTunes and rate and review. Give me five stars. You can say anything. You can say, I like bananas or eggplants versus aubergines. Which is best? Whatever. I don't care. Do what you want to do. Live your best life. But I would very much appreciate um it, it does really it helps me be seen. It helps me share more um history with other people and it gets it out there a little bit more and it would be absolutely fantastic if you would share this. And don't forget you can follow me on Twitter, who did what now PD, because there wasn't enough um uh there wasn't enough characters um available. You can catch me on Instagram, who did what now pod. I will post some lovely portraits of the lovely Neil Gwynn. Um, up on Instagram to go along with today's uh, today's episode. If you want more history facts, there I do sort of memes on Instagram, but I also do TikTok. I do informative videos uh, in 60 seconds or less. And I uh, hope to talk to you next time. Adios. Au revoir. Au revoir, my friends. Bye.
Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply 